I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the first installment in our two-part mini-series, Escaping the Pit. Before uh, comedian Dave Chappelle became as infamous as he is famous for his vocal critique of gender identity fundamentalism, he made headlines and bewildered the public for very different reasons a long time before that. In 2005, actually, Chappelle had abandoned his enormously popular Chappelle show despite being offered some $50 million for a third season. No one understood why he would do such a thing. He's had a breakdown the public said. That's the only way that we could conceive of that much money being left on the table. But then, more than a decade later, Chappelle described his decision to leave the show by relaying something that he had recalled from a nature documentary, of all things. And it had to do with trapping baboons. Apparently, baboons love salt. Go figure. So, to catch one, One simply digs a small hole and places within the small hole a handful of salt, a salt cube. The curious baboon pursues the salt but realizes too late and to its dismay that though it can reach into the narrow opening with a flat kind of narrowed hand, after seizing the salt with a clenched fist, it can't draw its hand back out of the narrow opening. The only way to get its hand back is to let go of the salt. And this is something the baboon is simply unwilling to do. And the trap is sprung, the baboon's put in a cage, and then whatever happens to a baboon after that, I don't know why people want to catch baboons. But the point is, in Chappelle's analogy, the salt trap, for him, was that $50 million paycheck. The artistic and moral compromises necessary to accept it. But for much of the world, releasing that salt was, at best, a strange decision, And at worst, it was incomprehensible, or it was irresponsible, or it was altogether foolish. It was $50 million. What does it mean to see the salt through the hole, salt that you can reach, and salt that you badly want, but then to just walk away? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Here's the deal. In two weeks, we will begin our annual vision series, which if you're new, it's just kind of a time to reevaluate who we are as a church, what we're doing as a church, and where we're going in the months ahead. But before we do that, before the vision series begins in two weeks, I wanted to take this Sunday and next Sunday to talk about something specific, something that we've been talking about every single Sunday um, in small doses and something that we've broached many times throughout our summer-long study of James, something that I feel has kind of been hovering in the periphery in small ways and needed some extra attention, and that thing is money. I know. If you're new to Van City, we've been having this honest conversation about the church's finances, the state of our giving. Kiana was just up here talking about it, our journey through the spiritual discipline of generosity and the financial future of Van City Church. Sounds like a weird thing to talk about, I know, but be that as it may, it is what it is. Now, spoiler alert, Van City has absolutely no aspirations to try and make our pastors rich or pile up buckets of money or, you know, to buy a big fountain shaped like Cam or something, despite his many, many requests at elder meetings for that very thing. At Van City, 
We are interested, quite frankly, in what it means to follow Jesus. It's an idea that we like to examine through the lens of apprenticeship. This is what Levi was touching on earlier. If you follow Jesus, the idea is that he is the master or the teacher, and you are the apprentice. You are training in his way of life. You are learning to see his way of seeing the world and to take up his mantle in the world. And like Levi said, the goal of every apprentice is threefold. To first be with Jesus. That's job number one. That's where it begins. And then eventually through that proximity, through time spent, you become like Jesus gradually over time. And then eventually become equipped and empowered to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. Opening the scriptures together is one way to be with Jesus, to sit under his teaching and to eye with careful detail his specific way of life. How else can we hope to become like him, let alone to do the kinds of things that he did if we don't know what he said, which is why week after week we open the scriptures together. Now, with that in mind, let's get to Matthew chapter 19. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of scripture? And let's read from Matthew 19, beginning with verse 16. The story goes that just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What, what, what do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, or that word can be translated complete, mature, made whole, go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away, sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. Go ahead and take a seat. So in the story, a guy comes to Jesus with a question. It seems like a simple setup, but we think Matthew, the author of this biography of Jesus, he's actually up to something more. Notice that when this new character approaches Jesus, he refers to him as teacher. And that's fair. Jesus is and was a teacher. People called him that all the time. But at this point in Matthew's gospel, both the reader and Jesus' disciples, his inner group, they have realized that he's something more than just an ordinary teacher. He is God's long-awaited anointed king of Israel. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. He has come to usher in the kingdom that will never end. And it's Jesus' identity as more than, you know, just an ordinary teacher that lends authority to his teaching. You can trust what he says because he's something more than just a teacher. So that this guy walks up and calls Jesus, hey, teacher, rather than Lord, is a kind of an ominous foreshadowing on the author's part. It's a hint at what's to come. Matthew's gospel is deeply literary, artistic. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. And the man's question is about something called eternal life. Now, most of us 
have something specific in mind when we hear that term eternal life. If you grew up in the church or if you've made the rounds in Christian culture, maybe what comes to mind is the concept of dying here on earth and then going to a place called heaven where you will live forever. But that's not what this guy has in mind. That's not what he's asking about. Scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. He wasn't simply asking about how to go to heaven after he died. The phrase kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that. It means God's saving rule coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away. Many, perhaps most, Jews of Jesus' day believed that Israel's God would do this and he would do it very soon. The question they were asking in several different ways was, who would benefit from it when it happened? Who would gain eternal life? So, Look at it this way. This guy isn't asking about a trip to heaven for his ghost. He is a Jewish dude who shares a commonly held Jewish expectation, expectation, and he's heard tell of this guy called Jesus. So here's a guy, he says to himself, I presume, that might have an in on this whole kingdom of God thing, the whole eternal life, kingdom of heaven, it's coming. This guy seems to know a thing or two about it. Let's ask him. He wants to be on the inside of what God is doing when it happens. Now, if we know Jesus, and I think we do, he should say something like this. What good thing should you do? You don't have to do anything. Salvation is a gift. Justification by faith through grace, my friend. Good news indeed. Have a nice life say this magic prayer, and then he hands him a little, you know, track that says, don't do these bad things. I don't know if you guys remember those. If you are alive in the, uh, I guess in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but we still had them in the 80s, there were these things called chick tracks in which almost everyone ended up dead or with AIDS. And uh, usually because they played board games like and video games and went to rock concerts. And at the end, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm, you know, those, the survivor says, I'm glad I'm not like this poor soul who played Dungeons and Dragons and is now dead and in hell. I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. And then you flip it over and it says, Re- repeat this thing. But I'm in the weeds, forget about that. Je- Jesus should hand him one of those. If, so anyway, let's fact check, shall we? Verse 17 Jesus should say, what good thing do you have to do? You don't do anything. So what does he say? Verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So that answer's weird, you know, Uh, and it gets weirder. Jesus begins by questioning the question, why are you asking me what is good? Only one is good. And the one to whom Jesus refers here is God. So Jesus is framing both his impending response and his own authority to give it by appealing to God, meaning he's saying, well, look, I have thoughts, but listen, I'm not making this stuff up. I am not substituting God. Jesus is saying, I am revealing God. Thus, it makes sense why he directs this Jewish man's Uh, attention to the Jewish law given by God himself. This is a story this guy would have known. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments, the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. And notice Jesus has revised the man's verb. The man asked, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus tells him how to enter life. The man wants a transaction. 
which sounds pretty familiar today. Many people think the exact same way. You say a prayer, you invite Jesus into your heart, it's nice and tidy, done. It's a transaction. You ask, he gives, and that's that. Be a good person, and God will bless you. Tit for tat, you hold up your end of the bargain, I'll hold up mine, it's transactional. But Jesus invites this guy into a process. If you want to enter, meaning it's an ongoing thing that lasts beyond just the beginning stages. One scholar I read this week uh, said that, quote, Jesus transfers the man from a market to a road. And interestingly, uh, Jesus' proposed method of entering life is to keep the commandments of all things. Now, remember, Jesus' take on the Jewish law, uh, it's not the truest revelation of God's heart or the truest revelation of God's will, meaning what God really wants. It's more like a corrective nanny designed to get sinful Israel back on track. So the metaphor I like is the one where God is a parent who wants his kids to enjoy playing outside with freedom and joy and safety, but they keep running into the road. You can't have that. It's very dangerous. They could die. So God says, listen, no one's listening to anything I'm saying. Every time I ask, you keep going in the road. So here's a fence, okay? Don't cross the fence. Don't go in the road. But then the kid's immediately climbing over the fence. So God says, look, we're all going to the backyard, okay? No one can be trusted out here. We're going to the backyard. Now, neither the fence nor the backyard are what God really wanted in the first place, but they're important. They are corrective measures to stop sin and to steward right living so that the children can learn what it means to play with freedom and not die in the process. Now, God doesn't want his kids in the backyard or behind the fence forever. That wasn't the idea, but the backyard and the fence aren't inherently bad. They're actually good for their intended purposes at their intended time. Now, you and I are not first century Jews. I don't know if you guys knew that. It's not the first century anymore. We have the teachings of Jesus. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the clearer or clearest revelation of God's desire and Jesus' way of life. But for this guy, Jesus begins with the law. If you know the story, there's a lot of them, some 600 plus, actually. So look at verse 18. The man says, which ones? It's a reasonable question. Just every single one of them, that's what it takes. And Jesus replies, oh, you shall not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus actually cites a handful of the Ten Commandments, six, seven, eight, nine, and five, if you're counting. And interestingly, the commandments that Jesus highlights are the commandments that address human relationships rather than divine relationships. Why is he emphasizing the treatment of people? to this particular dude. Let's find out. Verse 20, all those I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Now, the text doesn't give any indication one way or another if what this man is saying is true or false, at least not yet. As far as he tells it, he knows the commandments in question and he's kept all of them. And yet, even he recognizes a kind of uh, felt barrier. There's a gap or there's a deficit between himself and the freedom afforded those set to inherit the kingdom of God. He's like, no, 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 I did all those things. What am I still missing? I'm missing something. What is it? And then look at verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect or again, fully complete, mature, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven in the coming kingdom. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So there's a twist. This guy is rich, 
very rich. And his great wealth, Jesus says, is that barrier between the man and the kingdom. It is the thing that is still missing. There weren't a ton of very rich people in Jesus's world. Uh, so this gentleman was probably, it stands to reason, well-known, well-connected in the community. And scholars suspect that he's come to Jesus kind of winking. You know, hey, teacher, I'm a well-connected dude. You're a well-connected dude. What's it going to take for me to be on the inside of this whole thing that's going on? Name your price. You know I can cover it. What's it going to take? Which is likely why Jesus does exactly that. He names a price. But the price, unfortunately, is everything. And it is to be paid not to Jesus, but to the poor. A price simply too high for this rich man to pay. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect. Again, don't think of that as some kind of unrealistic invitation. He's asking this guy to do something that he can't possibly do in the first place. The Greek word that Jesus uses isn't exactly the way we use perfect. We hear perfect and we think without error of any kind. But the way Jesus uses it, again, is more like if you want to be brought into full maturity, if you want to take the next step into being complete and made whole to being made like God, he wants this man to redistribute his wealth. Not destroy it, not, you know, throw it in the trash or get rid of it. He wants it to be redistributed in the name of generosity, given out to the poor. All of it. If you want to be mature, complete, if you want to enter into life, if you want to take that first step, this is the first step, is to give everything away to the poor. And then after that, you still have to come follow Jesus. Now, and now we learn that this man does not actually keep the heart of the law the way that he claimed to do. His love for his stuff overpowers his love for God and for other people. Jesus tells this rich guy that if he can somehow part with all of his money and possessions, if he can give it away to the poor, then he'll learn what it means to actually be rich. And this is not some kind of, you know, prosperity equation like, hey, make a big donation so that God can give you even more money than you had before. Notice there's more than just the command to abandon his wealth. Jesus' final statement is, then, after you've done that, that's step number one, then come and follow me. And you guys know that's a lifelong process. Don't just give up all your money and stuff. Give up your entire way of life and then come follow me. This likely well-known, well-connected rich man is being invited to a wealthless life on the road with a poor, peasant, itinerant rabbi. And you can read that as Jesus' typical high ask, and it is. But look at it this way. Jesus is welcoming this guy into his inner circle, his community. He's not just giving him some command that he can't possibly follow to make him feel bad or to turn him away on purpose. He is actually inviting him into his community. So yes, give up everything, but then follow me. You won't have to figure it out by yourself. I will walk with you. I will teach you every single day. You can be my apprentice. I will be your master. Jesus is closing a circle between his first question and his final statement. Why do you ask me what is good? Come follow me and I will show you what is good. If you want to know the truth, if you want to see God, to know God, follow me, Jesus says. Not a transaction. It's not actually a moment at all. It is a lifelong learning, a process. Now, maybe you're thinking, yikes, but it must have been an issue unique to this particular rich man. 
So to provoke us, Jesus goes on in verse 23. Then Jesus turns around to his inner group, his inner circle, his disciples, and he says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just this dude, for someone who is rich. Again, I tell you, as if that wasn't enough, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you want this to hit even harder, and I know you do, uh, one translator that I read this week rendered that first line from Jesus, amen, I tell you, it will be practically impossible for a well-off person to get into the kingdom of God. A camel was the biggest, most burdensome common animal in ancient Palestine, and Jesus is casting this kind of absurd and discouraging word picture to emphasize just how noteworthy a hindrance wealth is to those hoping to enter the kingdom. And then in verse 25, the disciples hear this, and they hear how absurd it sounds and that image that it conjures in their imagination. They're greatly astonished, and they say, well, then who can be saved? Why does the intensity of this teaching surprise the disciples? That's kind of strange. Jesus has already said this kind of thing in the Sermon on the Mount way back earlier in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus' teaching is in line with the Hebrew tradition. In the Old Testament, the rich are often depicted as the bad guys, the oppressors, while the poor are depicted as those who receive Yahweh's unique attention and concern. Look at passages like these. This one from Psalm Chapter 9, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God, but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Or God, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says Yahweh. I will protect them from those who malign them. Or from Psalm 14, you evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is their refuge. Or listen to this longer passage from Isaiah 47. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there's no one besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of those will overtake you. And in a moment, on a single day, loss of children, children and widowhood, they will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries, all your potent spells. You've trusted in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am, there's no one besides me. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. You cannot pay your way out of it. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Now, these are just a handful of passages. Honestly, we could go on and on and on and on. The question of why Jesus' hardcore teaching comes as any surprise to the disciples kind of confuses and, frankly, baffles commentators who can conclude only this. The myth that to be rich is to be happy was as pervasively, if even subconsciously, assumed then as it is today. Even though they had sat under his teaching for years, the disciples can't help but believe the cultural narrative that more money is better than less money. Everyone wants to be rich. So Jesus answers them in verse 26. He looks at them and says, with man, this is impossible. No one could come into the kingdom as a rich person, but with God, all things are possible. Again, you have the kind of discouragement as encouragement. Jesus is saying, look, you can't pull this off one way or another. 
The only reason that anyone, rich or poor, can be rescued from death is that God has made a way for it to happen. In this sense, it's no more impossible for a rich man to lay down his false God than it is for any of us to lay down our old ways of life, die, and then come follow Jesus. In theology, we call this uh, prevenient grace. It's the idea that all of us were dead, and it was impossible for us of our own volition, our own accord to be reconciled to God with whom we were enemies. But God woke us up, all of us, not just a special arbitrary few, and he created a way for us to be able to accept that seemingly impossible invitation of Jesus. Come, die, follow me. Now, you guys still awake? You with me? Great, thank you. Here's the problem with the text, and it's a big one. We do not want to see ourselves in the rich man. Absolutely, including myself in this, all of us, we don't want to see ourselves in this character. Sure, we don't want to reject the gospel. You don't want to be the guy who walks away sad and doesn't want to follow Jesus. But that's not actually what I mean. We don't want Jesus to ask us to give everything away and follow him. And honestly, for years, whenever I've looked into this text, I've heard people rushing to the same exact points. One, Jesus doesn't ask all his disciples to give away everything, which is true. He doesn't. That's true. Peter, in the story, still has a house. They all live there. Um, some of the fishermen still have boats. They return to them when they believe Jesus is dead for good. Heck, even the uh, villainous tax collector turned disciples, they aren't commanded, at least in the story as we read it, to get rid of everything. So, citing all of those true things, fair things, some wag their worried finger at the text and say, see, see, we don't all have to give up all of our stuff. We say, it's about heart posture. We plead, not about the actual money and stuff. In his commentary on this passage, scholar R.T. France argues that these points are all absolutely relevant, but he goes on to say, there is, however, an undeniable element of self-justification in such exegesis of this passage by the wealthy, a category which in comparative terms includes almost all Western readers of the gospel. That's us, by the way. Frederick Dale Bruner, another uh, scholar in his uh, commentary on Matthew, agrees and writes this, we believe that Jesus intends every disciple in every generation to hear this command to the rich man as a command to them to do something with their assets that will indicate that their discipleship to Jesus is real. All of us are addressed by Jesus in the story at the point of our possessions, and we are asked to say, is it I, Lord? Readers should be careful to avoid the particularist, only the rich man, interpretation of our text. In every disciple, something needs to change economically if we are to follow Jesus's word with integrity. Now, those sounded tough, but uh, I've saved the best one for last. With wonderful candidness, uh, Robert Gundry puts it really simply like this. He says that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. That we want an escape hatch from this passage makes perfect sense. We're Americans. Uh, affluence is the air that we breathe. 
Uh, only we don't call it that. We call it stability or we call it security or we call it being responsible or doing well or being blessed. And as I studied this passage, I learned that for many years, there has been this interesting ongoing effort to somehow soften Jesus' words. Some interpreters, for example, began replacing the word camel with cable as in, it's easier for a cable to pass through the eye of a needle, which is hilarious to me because it's still impossible. <laughs> it's just less hyperbolic, you know? It's like, eh, it's impossible. It's not so bad. It highlights, I think, the desperate scramble of some to make Jesus less, less hard on those of us with much. Another, and again, this is, these are completely discredited readings and interpretations, but another completely discredited interpretation of the text came along in the 19th century in which the eye of a needle was said to be an actual physical gate through which a camel could only pass if it put down its load, bit down on its knees, and went through humbled. So the idea was that you had to humble yourself before God, and then you can. You can go through the eye of a needle. Problem is, there's absolutely no evidence in or outside of the Bible of such a conveniently named gate or place. In other words, there's no getting around this one. So here's our problem. No, Jesus does not ask every one of his disciples to divest every single cent and every single thing that they own, to sell everything, give it away to the poor. He could have done that, and he didn't do it. So, and please hear me say this, having money is not inherently wrong. In fact, well-off disciples of Jesus with the maturity to hold their resources in, in open hands have historically been the ones that enabled the church to thrive through their generosity, financial divestment for the sake of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself was supported by wealthy patrons, wealthy women, funded Jesus' ministry, as were many figures throughout the New Testament and the early church. And even Van City, quite frankly, has escaped financial ruin. I'm not being exaggerant here. More than a few times, thanks to the gifts of individuals who had a lot of money and institutions who had a lot of money. So please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you have money or if you make money, you are definitely in sin and you should feel the horrible weight of this passage. I'm saying that all of us have to wrestle with Jesus' teaching. Having money and having stuff is not inherently wrong, but in the scriptures, it is inherently dangerous like alcohol or sex or food, money can be wielded sinlessly, but it can oh so easily corrupt your very soul. All throughout, all four gospels, listen to this. When we hear stories of Jesus approaching someone, whoever they are, wherever they are, and calling them, hey, you, come follow me. In every case, in all four gospels, they drop their nets. They abandon their boats. They leave behind their careers. They leave behind their lifestyles and their worldviews and their families. In every case, that is, except one. This one. In all the Gospels, every time Jesus says, follow me, unlikely people give up everything and follow him. The only thing depicted in the Gospels as an almost insurmountable obstacle to accepting the call of Jesus is money and possessions. It is very, very difficult for a rich person to find the kingdom. Jesus' words, not mine. Almost impossible. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle, he said. And notice, the text doesn't accuse this man of using his money for bad stuff. 
It doesn't say that he did injustice. In fact, some scholars assume that given the great value for poor relief amongst first century Jews, he could have very well been a charitable person. The text doesn't say that he was stingy. It doesn't say that he was debauched or scandalous with all his great wealth. All we know is that he has it. All we know is that he doesn't want to give away all of it. One theologian notes, to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it's not their wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem. Because what does wealth even mean? From where does it begin? This is a question that has been wrestled with throughout the centuries of church history. Look at this quote from a fourth century bishop about being rich. He wrote hundreds of years ago, tell me then, how is it then that you are rich? From whom did you receive it? And from whom did he transmit it to you? From his father and grandfather? But can you, ascending through many generations, show the acquisition just? It cannot be. The root and origin of it must have been injustice. Why? Because God in the beginning did not make one person rich and another poor. He left the earth free to all alike. Why then, if it is common, have you so many acres of land? while your neighbor has not a portion of it. Now, unless you excuse yourself from this conversation, keep in mind that most, if not every single person in this room, are rich compared to a huge swath of the world population. I think a common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence because, you know, the single person or the young family or the college student surviving on ramen, they think of themselves as poor, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to most of the known world. The upper class, they observe the wealthy super rich and they think of themselves as not so rich after all. The middle class, they observe the upper class and they think of themselves as not as bad as them and on down the economic ladder. And yet, if you eat food every day or if you drive a car or live in a home or if you go to restaurants or decorate your homes or if you enjoy basic creature comforts like the insane, horrifying-sounding air conditioner that comes out, but for which we're very grateful. If you, if you even have one or two of those basic creature comforts, then you are rich by a global standard. Again, this from Frederick Dale Bruner. He writes, Jesus' word overpowers every other occupation and preoccupation, but money is so powerful that it alone can resist Jesus' word. This story is put in the gospel to warn us of the demonic power of money and of real estate. The man's problem and ours is not great wealth, which is true of only a few of us. It is many things, which is true of almost every one of us in the West. To quote Jesus, you cannot serve both God and money. And make no mistake, this passage is about money and possessions specifically, but it does speak to a deeper truth of that which keeps us from freedom. Hauerwas notes that our temptation is to think that Jesus' reply is intended to let us off the hook. Being rich is a problem, we may think, but God will take care of us, the rich, the way only God can. Yet such a response fails to let the full weight of Jesus' observation about wealth have the effect it should. 
Jesus' reply challenges not only our wealth, but our very concept of salvation. To be saved means that our lives are no longer our own. Concern for wealth doesn't always manifest in lavish lifestyles and opulent households. It could be the fretful anxiousness with which you handle your money. It could be nervous penny-pinching or hoarding a savings account that never gets distributed in the name of generosity. It could be big plans for financial safety and security under the guise of being a responsible adult. And don't get me wrong, being financially stable can be a very good thing. The problem is that the invitation of Jesus was not, come follow me and be financially stable. He actually invited his disciples to radical generosity. He calls us to let go of what we think is ours. N.T. Wright says, all right, says Jesus, this is the one that will complete your collection. Give everything away. In order to be complete, you must be empty. In order to have everything, you must have nothing. In order to be fully signed up to God's service, you must be signed off from everything else. Nearly everything about the context and culture in which you and I live stands to keep us blind to the way money can corrupt us. Everything about us is screaming the same old message. Money's good. More money is better. We don't owe anyone our money. It's our money. And the only pushback, it seems, is kind of socio-political activism or vitriol within corrupted systems of the world. So fight capitalism with socialism. No, fight socialism with capitalism. But the way of Jesus is never about how can there be more for me? It is always about how can I learn to give myself away even at great, great cost? The Western mind wants badly to simply drift in the warm, gentle current of its own financial imagination, but the disciple of Jesus has to maintain a deliberate, concentrated sobriety in the echo chamber of the lies that we're told, drag themselves up out of the lazy undertow and say, no, this is not the truth. King Jesus taught us to hold our money and our possessions with open hands. They don't belong to us. They belong to God. They are not to be exhausted on our own appetites only. Think back to just a couple of weeks ago, that line from James. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives to get what you spend on your own pleasure. Money and resources, the stuff that we earn, the stuff that we so believe is truly and rightfully ours in Jesus's kingdom economy is not to be prioritized for our pleasures or hoarded for our own perceived longevity. They are to be redistributed in the name of generosity to the poor, to those in need, for justice, for the kingdom, and for the church. And if this does not describe our approach to our income and our resources, whether you're young and single and poor, or if your bank account is padded and your income covers everything and more, if our default disposition to our money and our stuff is not kingdom of God, self-sacrificial generosity, then that reveals a gap in our apprenticeship to Jesus. That reveals a gap in our willingness to obey him. 
It does not mean that you can never spend your own money on stuff that you want. It's about learning that it's not yours in the first place. So yeah, you can do, you know, I like to go to the movies. I go to the movies, no big deal. But the first thing on my mind as I follow Jesus has to be and continue to be, how can I be generous? How can I give more away than I keep for myself in the name of the kingdom of God? See, there's a reason that for centuries, the people of God have learned to practice routine, discipline, structured giving, regardless of their income, regardless of their season of life. To do so requires a, a routine surgical parting with a chunk of our finances. It's something that I believe is deeply beneficial for the soul. The idea is that where you have an income, relatively big or relatively small, the disciple of Jesus immediately divides from that income a self-sacrificial portion to go elsewhere. That is a spiritual discipline. It's not tipping. It's not throwing a random amount into a, a passing change purse on a Sunday every now and then. Uh, it's costly. It's deliberate. It's committed. It's thoughtful. Not a little off the top that you'll never miss one way or the other, not an occasional donation to make yourself feel good, but consistent self-sacrificial parting with excess for the sake of others and for the good of your own soul. Not everyone is being asked to part with every cent, but all of us are being asked to open the American death grip on our finances, however big or small they seem to us or anyone else. If you want to follow Jesus, it no longer belongs to you. You don't get autonomous control over your bank account or your body or your thoughts or your words. All of them are given over in loving submission to King Jesus. And that makes many of us feel like this rich man who went away sad, the camel that could not pass through the eye of a needle. Now, tonight, I do not want to abstract this passage to death and ask questions like, oh, you know, what are the things in your life that keep you from the kingdom? This text is specifically about money and possessions, about the willingness to leave behind that to which we feel entitled. Don't excuse yourself from the conversation. Even if you feel young and poor and strapped, just wait and hear me out. My humble invitation for you and for me is to sit before God's Spirit and ask, how does the way you keep and spend your money, reveal your willingness to part with it for the sake of the kingdom, or else your unwillingness to do so? Does the idea of giving a regular, planned, self-sacrificial amount to the church make you feel uneasy? Does finding outlets to care for the poor financially sound far-fetched? Do you think, well, I'll do that kind of thing when I have more money, maybe then? Do you think, I'll get around to generosity at a different stage, at a different season of my life. And I know I've said this a million times, but believe me when I say, if you are not generous with little, you will not be generous with a lot. It is always easier to give away a little from a little than it will be to give away a lot from a lot. You start in whatever season of life and whatever stage of discipleship and allow the Spirit to grow you into maturity or, as Jesus said, to become perfect, complete, whole like God is. Does even treating someone to coffee make you want to squirm? 
If Jesus did tell you, think about this one. If Jesus did tell you, point Blake tonight in listening prayer, sell everything you have and give to the poor, what would you feel? I wouldn't feel great about it. <laughs> or, or what would you say? Can you imagine? What would you say? I know that that's a very uncomfortable question to ask. Believe me, it is for me too. But remember, Jesus does not provoke for the simple sake of making us sit in our discomfort and reveal how disobedient we are. He does this to bring us into life. He knows what is best for us. He knows what it means for us to be free. And quite frankly, we don't. Do you know people? Not so great all the time. Trust me about this. Next week, we're going to talk at length with one more teaching on money, if you guys will let me. We're going to talk about how we put this stuff into practice in tangible, specific ways as practices. And we'll talk about the next season of finances and giving at Vance City Church and where that all stands and how we're growing and how we're going forward. But tonight, I just wanted us to sit in this, one of the most uncomfortable teachings in Jesus's ministry and career. It's about money. And to sit with this question, Jesus's question. Almost all of us understand that true and good and beautiful things are almost always, in many ways, very costly. Friendship, uh, a vocation, a dream, marriage, family, parenting, community. None of these things are easy or simple or painless or straightforward. In everything, Jesus is teaching us that if we allow him to empower us to let go of anything and everything that stands between us and him, we will be more free, even if we don't believe him. And money, he consistently taught, is often among the most powerful obstructions between us and him. Now, Jesus is not calling us to a monk-like, you know, disciplined, miserable self-denial. He is teaching us self-denial as the door through which we access life to the fullest, what he called the life that is truly life. And that hurts for some of us in some stages of our discipleship, or it seems scary, or it seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.